The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Looking today at John's Gospel for Resurrection Aftermath, if you will. The first part of John 20 reports a discovery at the tomb that is well familiar to us, slightly different perspectives told by each of the four Gospels as different visitors came and various interactions took place. But we're looking now at the time at the end of Easter Day, beginning at verse 19 of John 20 and reading through the end of that chapter. Listen to God's own word, please, as I read John chapter 20, beginning at 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of nails and my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Father, as we consider this, communicate not mystically, but in the power of understanding your word, that life that you hold out to each of us by trusting Christ. May he be praised. Amen. I ask how do you think God regards your doubts about trusting fully in his son? 
How do you think he regards your uncertainties about the miraculous resurrection of Jesus? Probably it's a first instinct with people to say, well, doubt is a bad thing. Doubt is sinful, isn't it? Why would God have any patience with my doubts? And yet, there's a degree to which even for Christian believers of long standing, there are some degrees and shades and shadows of doubt that are inescapable, at least for a temporary time in all of our lives. I was fascinated to read a New Testament scholar, good man of God, Don Carson, who was writing about this subject of doubt, and he suggested at least five different ways in which we can have doubt or for which we might have doubt as Christians. He said, well, one is simple ignorance of key facts. If people aren't informed well about biblical understanding and biblical material, which people are blamefully not in this generation, biblical illiteracy is huge, then they simply aren't going to have the data that they need to draw good conclusions to build up their faith, and they will perhaps wallow in some doubt just by ignorance. Then he said there's another way people can doubt, and that's by having a misguided philosophy of life or worldview, as we might call it. If you adopt certain assumptions, for example, that materialism is the main thing and all we can know about the world is what we know by material observation and science, or if you adopt the existential view that, you know, that we go around once and then it's all over, working from a wrong basis, a wrong mindset, can create many kinds of doubt. And then there's doubt that's very common, and I'm going to speak about this later on in the message, about doubt as a rite of passage in life, something that happens in almost every life, particularly when we're young and we're still getting things sorted out and deciding what's really true in the world and how are we supposed to view things. Students go through this. Young adults go through this. And it will happen to you, but what you need to be careful about is that you come through it and you see that there are ways to to learn and be reinforced and, and have answers to the things you doubt. Then doubt can come from sinful moral choices. If you habitually reject the the morality of the Bible, you're going to find yourself chipping away at and eroding the doctrines of the Bible. You might have once had a a vital prayer life as a young person in a youth group or, or a good time studying God's Word, and now that you're off somewhere sleeping with your boyfriend regularly, pursuing pornography or whatever, what's the coincidence that somehow your Bible now has a lot of dust on it? It's not a coincidence at all. Immorality and doubt of Christian faith are first cousins. They often travel together. Well, then there's a fifth way, and that's something we can easily understand, that doubt can arise from any kind of crisis in our lives. Someone dies, tragedy comes, illness strikes, you're trying to work out the effects of childhood abuse or a physical disability or a job loss or many other things can cause you to doubt the Lord. So it would seem like doubt can be a pretty prevalent thing. And 
while it is real and it's almost unavoidable for most of us in some forms or other, what we need to aim at is that it would be no more than a temporary refuge. The problem comes when we surrender to doubt. And we decide, well, I might as well just sort of move the furniture in and live inside a cave of doubt for a long time because there is no else, no, nothing else, no other place for me to land in this sad world. Well, John chapter 20 tells us about a great doubter, Thomas. Doubting Thomas, we always call him, right? A man whose reservations at first kept him apart from the other post-Easter disciples. I was reflecting about that and thinking, you know, it's, it's actually quite remarkable that 10 men out of 11 did accept the truth of the resurrection as quickly as they did. It must have been a powerful kind of truth for them to be more or less bowled over by it because 10 accepted it. Only one didn't. You probably would have expected a higher degree of struggle and disbelief than there actually was among the remaining 11 disciples. Well, we have this scene here in John 20 of the risen Jesus appearing behind closed doors. John seems to go out of his way to mention that the doors on both occasions were locked. And why they were locked? Because the people there were afraid. But somehow there was Jesus. No one says, I saw him pass through a door or anything of that kind, but There he was, in the room, appearing to them. And when he did this first time, it was the Easter evening, it was the first day of the week, Sunday night, proof for Sunday evening services, by the way, as Jesus came and and was in their midst. And then eight days later, we surmise it was a Monday when he did the same again. The first time, one man wasn't there. And the absence of Thomas is what sets up, of course, the text that we consider here. I want to say three things about Thomas and his cynicism. What we have here first in verses 24 and 25 is the way that doubting Thomas portrays the cynicism of a disappointed skeptic. Now, when you know that he missed the first opportunity to see Jesus, you might just say to yourself, well, he was probably out on an errand, uh, doing some business, What bad timing. Uh, How unfortunate. What a coincidence. He just happened to miss Jesus. But you know, as I think about this text, I cannot prove this, but I'm going to give it to you as a speculation that there's more than a coincidence involved that Thomas wasn't there. I believe it was his character and his whole way of conducting himself in this scene that made him be absent. Let me give you a couple clues to what this man was like because you may not have known what was said about him earlier, but at least two things just in this gospel. One is back in John 11 that we looked at last week when we were preparing to see Lazarus raised and Jesus said, I'm going down, you know, to let us go down to Bethany where Lazarus is. And uh, Thomas, all that Thomas knew was, well, the Lord's life was under threat there. If he went there, he was a wanted man. This was bad. And so in John eleven sixteen, he pipes up and says, well, we might as well go there and die with him. That's the best he can think of that a trip to Jerusalem is going to bring, Mr. Sadsack Pessimist. Then John 14, verse 5, where he says, 
he's responding to Jesus saying that he's going away and so on. And, and the, he, he said to them, you know where I'm going. And Thomas right away jumped in and said, we don't know where you're going. How can we? How can we know the way? Once again, the man to lean towards the negative and ask the question. You can trust in Thomas for that kind of viewpoint. And gee, I think there's somebody like him in every crowd of at least 10 or 12 people. That puts a lot of those kind of folks in our church, I guess. And maybe I'm one of them sometimes. How easy it is to see the pessimistic result and to imagine how things won't work out. That was Thomas. People like that, people with a melancholic temperament, we would call it, tend to isolate themselves. You know, they're, they're near some folks who are preparing to go on a picnic because it's a beautiful day, and they say, you can't do that. The sky's about to fall. Or they're holding the same glass of water as somebody else, and everyone else is saying, isn't it great? I still have 70% of my water left in my glass. And Thomas is looking at his saying, what are you talking about? Mine is 30% empty. Always his would be 30% empty. He would never see it in any positive light. Here were Peter and John given the evidence of the women who had come from the tomb and said, His body is gone. They've taken the Lord. There was a man all in white talking to us. Peter and John bolted out of where they were and ran to the tomb to find out what was going on. Where was Thomas? Did he investigate? We have no understanding that he, in the slightest way, had an interest or an inclination to go and find out what was going on at the tomb. I find there are people of of doubting temperament around me that are pretty comfortable in their doubts. Pessimism can become sort of like a, you know, Linus and his blanket. Remember from years ago? Pessimism can be just like Linus's blanket. You hold on to it, I guess, to comfort yourself against some of the jolts of life, and you, you just, you would never want to let it go. You know, if Snoopy the dog came by and grabbed it, you would chase him down and, and keep that pessimism close to you. It's a refuge for you. It feels safe to be pessimistic. I'm sure there are some among us who stand spiritually near to Thomas in this and maybe apart from others in this congregation. I'm not pointing you out to make you feel embarrassed. I don't see Jesus embarrassing Thomas at all. I see him actually being very kind and compassionate to Thomas. He understood this man and his doubts. But you know, there's something we can commend about him here. You might think, how do you commend a man who's, who's always, you know, sort of the, the wet blanket, the guy who, who just is uh, negative? Well, I'll commend him for this. Thomas determined that he would accept nothing less than a historical, verifiable, bodily resurrection of Jesus. Nothing less than that would do for him. He said, unless I can put my finger in the mark of the nails and my hand in his side, I will not believe it. Thomas would not get along well with a notorious biblical critic. And I don't single this man out because he speaks for many others. But Dominic Crossan is well known as a Bible expert, so-called. He's one of the guys that I can almost guarantee you if the History Channel does a you know, a show about, well, where are the hidden gospels or something like that. Dominic Crossan will be there as a, a prominent spokesman. 
And Dominic Crossan is a man who would say today an opinion shared by many. He has said it in his writings very plainly. He says, look, it isn't going to make any difference to me one way or the other if someday the archaeologist uncovers some kind of dusty bones in a stone box in Jerusalem, and it could be proved by some means that these are the actual bones of Jesus, that he did not survive, that he just died. It isn't going to change Easter for me. What does Dominic Crossan mean? He says, he's saying, look, it's not a physical body that rose anyway. It's just the renewal of the hope of Jesus, the, the memory, the ideals of Jesus arising in our hearts and inspiring us. That's what counts. So it wouldn't change if they somehow found his physical remains. Well, I stand with Thomas. Thomas, who said no to that. You know what the famous general in World War II said at the Battle of the Bulge to the Germans? You're all surrounded. There's 10 million of us and and only a few thousand of you. You better surrender. What was his name? General McAuliffe, I think. What did he say? Nuts to that. The Germans couldn't even figure it out. They didn't know what nuts meant. Thomas said, nuts to that. I will have a body that is graphic, that includes bone marrow and skin and amino acids and nerve ganglia and feet and hands or nothing. I will never believe unless that very body that can be identified by the scars still evident on Jesus' skin is revealed before me. Thank you, Thomas. For to that extent, your doubt gave you something good. And you see, Jesus did not condemn that aspect of this skeptic with his genuine desire for a real Savior revealed to him. I think God was very compassionate to him. In fact, this limping sheep was certainly allowed to be in Christ's flock. So get past the cynicism of a disappointed skeptic and secondly, look at the worship of an astonished skeptic. That's what we see when Christ did appear eight days later, it says. I don't know why eight days. There's no special magic in that number that I'm aware of. But Jesus appeared again and this time said, put your finger here, put your hand here, do what you asked. And interestingly, notice if you're reading the text carefully, it doesn't even say that he actually did that. He was invited to do it, but you wonder, did he even have to do it once it was so apparent that he could do it? And it says, Thomas responded with an answer that is wonderful. My Lord, my God. You really don't need a lot of words to express Christian faith. My Lord, my God. Out of all the professions of faith in Christ that are given in the New Testament, there are some great ones. I don't think there's one that's better. Out of the mouth of a man who was moving into hardening skepticism here at first, but immediately turned around 180 degrees, suddenly, instantaneously made this wonderful confession of faith. As Jesus had said to him, stop doubting, start believing. That wasn't a suggestion. It was actually more like a command, the way it's worded in the Greek. Jesus presents evidence that is needed, logic that is needed, 
what your brain needs to take in. And he says, all right, here's what you asked for. Now, do your part. Start believing. I've told you before from this pulpit how one of the special things about Easter for me isn't just the great music and springtime and the joy of it and everything. It's, it's actually, in a way, marking an anniversary for me, an anniversary when assurance came into the picture of my own personal faith. I gave a child's trust in Christ when I was eight years of age, and that was real. It really did mean something to me, and I pursued it throughout my years you know, into adolescence through teenage years in high school. I was serious about it, very serious about it. But I was always a little bit, I guess I'd have to say, unsure. If I'm analyzing this from a doctrinal theologian's point of view, my problem was assurance, what the theologian calls the assurance of faith. And I would, you know, somebody could give an altar call and I'd say, oh boy, you know, have I really done what I'm supposed to do? Am I really, do I really belong to Christ? And it it always seemed to be based on, well, how do I feel about that? Or am I passionate enough? Am I dedicated enough? And finally, at the age of about 17, in a very simple way, I think it was at an Easter, as I recall. Don't have a date in mind. The historical evidence for the resurrection of Christ was like the final shoe dropping. You know, we say that we're waiting for that last shoe to drop. Well, the shoe dropped. And with a thunk, somehow I looked at this and said, wait, look. My God has put evidence in history that would fulfill a lawyer's courtroom requirement for proof of conviction. He has given a, an iron chain of facts that people have tried to break through and give alternative explanations, and every one of the alternatives just is foolish. It doesn't even come close to making an explanation that suffices alongside the good evidence. And so 46 years ago now, I said, it's the proof of the resurrection of Jesus that makes me sure. That makes me sure in times when I might be uncertain, when I might question, when I might say, what are you doing, God? I'm not sure I've got your plan figured out here right now, and some of you are living there. But I have my feet on a rock because I can say what Thomas said, and I can say it today and tomorrow and the day beyond that, my Lord, my God. The divinity of Jesus Christ is not in doubt for me whatsoever. That is bedrock where Christianity is concerned. Do you know that? There are a lot of things Christians can disagree about, many of them legitimate disagreements, and we ought to to do it hospitably and kindly with one another when it's a secondary point that doesn't affect our faith or salvation. But listen, we can't disagree on this. We have to say to Jesus Christ, my Lord and my God. That last is a non-negotiable. You cannot erase it from our creed. Someone who wants to say, well, how little of the Apostles' Creed or how much do I have to believe? Don't try to take that one out. You've just wiped out the creed. Because if we cannot say to Jesus, my Lord and my God, historical man, who walked this earth from baby in Bethlehem to a horrible cross in Jerusalem to 
a wonderful appearance that amazed skeptics when they were still hiding behind locked doors. My Lord, my God. You see how different that is saying from grouping Jesus with the greats of history and saying, why, Jesus, you're almost as great as Napoleon or Joan of Arc or George Washington or Winston Churchill. My goodness, those people are nobodies. Nobody says to them, my Lord and my God. If they do, they're totally deluded. Former skeptics are called to have no less than a posture of adoring worship before Jesus Christ, whose glory they once dismissed. Well, finally, let me conclude here with the tale of Thomas the Doubter by mentioning a third thing, the witness of a transformed skeptic. Because Thomas becomes a great witness here to us. We can look at what happened to him and say, look, here was a man who was absolutely determined. There was no way he was going to accept this. He was nobody's fool. And he got one sight, and immediately he didn't debate. He didn't say, Jesus, would you tell me a little bit about how this happened? No. He looked, and he said, my Lord and my God. And then Jesus told Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. But blessed are those who have not seen me and still believe. That's you, folks. That's you. You know, we live in an age when people would like to emphasize visions and dreams and and, uh, individual revelations. And there are many people who would like that. They would say, well, you know, my, my Christianity would be stronger if I could cite some kind of a vivid dream. Christ appeared to me and really showed himself and spoke a special message to me. Then I would really believe in him. Well, that's not the Bible's design for you. The design of the Word of God, according to this, what we're looking at here, is that you would not have to see him and believe him on the basis of the testimony of those who did have that firsthand revelation, the apostles and the prophets and those who come before us. The question is, do you trust the testimony that God has made available? And you know what? A special appearance for you wouldn't really do what you think it would. Jesus said elsewhere in Luke 16, 31, that if men do not believe Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced if someone was to rise from the dead. Somebody did rise from the dead. Did Jesus rising from the dead cause thousands and thousands and thousands instantly within a matter of days to believe in him? No. It did convince enough hundreds or scores who carried the witness. And that witness multiplied and multiplied and moved outward. But you know, special visions are not what we're to look for. Think of Pharaoh in ancient Egypt when Moses was coming before him saying, let my people go and Pharaoh was witness to those ten plagues, those miracles worked by the hand of Moses. They were worked by God's power, but Moses was the human agent. And Pharaoh saw things that were supernatural. He wanted his magicians to see if they could duplicate them. They couldn't. Supernatural things he couldn't deny. Did Pharaoh say, oh, Moses, your God is great. I will trust him and let you go. Not at all. Pharaoh just grew more adamant in the, in the exact face of supernatural revelations from God. It's the Bible that is God's record of resurrection witness. 
And we are asked to trust it or else say, God's lying. Thomas is lying. Peter's lying. Mary's lying. You see, that's the choice. How could we ask for more trustworthy witnesses than God has given us in his word? It was something that turned people around in their tracks. Now give me just a few more minutes because I want to make a special application here to the younger adults in our audience. Those of you from late teens on through your 20s, I'm burdened for you today. When I speak about this subject of doubt, Because you live in one of the most vulnerable times of life to deal with doubt. And boy, are you surrounded and inundated and flooded with reasons to doubt things. You're taught certain things in Sunday school, in the Word of God. You're taught a basic faith in Christ. And many of you certainly responded with that. And many, I will say many, many of our young people follow through on that. So I'm not here to to lecture because I see some special problem happening among our young people more so than any others. But I know because I, believe it or not, once a long time ago was a young adult myself, and so were your parents, and so were your grandparents. And we know what you're going through when you're out there in the world and people are challenging supernatural Christianity, supernaturalism of any sort, with a completely naturalistic view of the world. If I wanted to enter into the gay marriage debate, we could have it right there. Are you going to have an answer based on naturalism or supernaturalism that God has something to say about this? But this carries over into all kinds of things. And I want to say, young adults, be aware, beware of adopting a settled kind of mindset of doubt and cynicism. Almost as a pose or a posture that you take on as you move among your peers in college years and young adult years. Because, you know, you sort of have to defend yourself. Sooner or later when there's a discussion, your view is going to be sought. Now, I don't even know if the word cool applies anymore. It used to apply for a long time. I'm not cool. I know that. I don't know if I, if I ever was, for that matter. But you want to be cool. What does that mean? Well, accept it. You want to fit in. You want to somehow not look too strange alongside all your friends. And they're taking skeptical views. They're taking attack mode views, being fed very well by their textbooks, by their professors, by the media, by the songs you listen to. And, you know, it just seems like it's fashionable, it's stylish to to step back and say, I'm not going to be the person that stands in that Sunday school view of I believe what the Bible says. I believe in a God of miracles. I'm just going to step back a few steps and live in that step back view for a while and maybe even while I'm doing it, lean, let's see, this is left, lean a little bit to the left and say, hmm, prove it to me. Young people, it's okay to doubt. It's certainly okay to ask questions. But you're living in a world today where everything is slanted in a vicious way against the supernatural truth of God. You are studying from professors. I don't care what colleges you go to. Some that once had a great Christian heritage within a few hundred miles of here have Bible departments that are an abomination. They don't teach the Bible. They don't trust the Bible. They don't think the Bible is a supernatural book. 
What do they believe in? Well, the great religion of the university, you know what it is. Tolerance. We tolerate everything. Sure you do. What about Christian supernaturalism? Is that tolerated by your professors? Are your professors really open-minded? Have they ever really weighed the truths and evidences of the Bible? I doubt it. Because it's actually something to celebrate on campuses today that we allow any view except that of these narrow-minded, bigoted Christians. Students, I want to say to you, do what your professors won't do. Decide that you will look at both sides of a question. As doubt is tearing things down, go and read Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. Go and read The Reason for God by Tim Keller. Go and read Josh McDowell's long-term classic, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Go and read John Stott's Basic Christianity. At least tell yourself, I am going to hear what both sides say. Because you're being influenced by many who are driven by doubt. And they'll be happy to pull you into that cave which they've adopted as their refuge. One of the most intelligent men I've ever read happens to be a great Christian, G.K. Chesterton. Wow, did he have a brain. Chesterton was an Englishman, and he wrote this one time. He said, the Christian faith has not been tried and found wanting, as people suppose. Instead, he said, it has been imagined to be hard and rarely tried. That man was right. Will you be one that won't wear the fashionable posture of cynicism and doubt? but will determine to explore truth? If you will, don't be surprised if you end up like Thomas. Don't be surprised if you find yourself saying to Jesus, my Lord, my God. John 20, 31, the last verse of our text says, this is the main purpose of John writing this gospel so that people would make the discovery that Thomas made and that they would gain life through believing in the name of Christ. Life means the assurance of knowing God, being forgiven, being at peace, moving towards his purpose in eternity. I urge you to rest in the kind of proof that Easter gives through the gospel. 1 Peter is a much later verse in the Bible, but 1 Peter 1, 8 and 9 says this, Though you have not seen Christ, you love him. Though you do not see him now. You believe in him and you rejoice. What have we been doing today? What have all these wonderful brass players and singers and timpani drums and organ and everything been helping us to do? Rejoicing with joy that is inexpressible and full of glory. That's what people do whether they see him with their own eyes or not. Because the church of Jesus Christ And those who have considered God's word, believe me, are not people sailing on a ship of fools. We've not left our brains at the door of the church. We say with confidence and with faith and with our intellect intact, Christ the Lord is risen indeed. My Lord, my God, and I pray yours as well our Father.
Father, help us. We live in a world where people are sucked into the swamp of doubt. It's even fashionable to doubt. We celebrate the doubters. We hold them up as if they were great experts of some kind. Father, I pray especially for our young adults, the next generation of leaders of your church and leaders in this world. Liberate them from this quagmire, this poisonous gas that fills the atmosphere of our universities and colleges. Liberate our minds to use the intellects you've given. We might see the truths you've laid down and rejoice with inexpressible joy. For Jesus' sake, amen.